I want to speak this for, for the next coming hour about Saint-Omer in principle. Um, as uh, Ramon already said, it's a small island state in the Gulf of Guinea, for those of you who are not familiar with it, and it's a former Portuguese colony. Um, oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> so in December 2011, the state-run TV channel of Saint-Germain Principe dedicated its chat show, Portas Abertas, to the topic of petroleum. One of the stylish young hosts, who you can see in this picture posed the following question to the two experts who had been invited to speak on the issue. How can we, the Saint-Domingue people, the Palayesh, that's the women fish vendors, the fishermen, the journalists, lawyers and taxi drivers who are not part of the state, benefit from oil, she asked. And she continued, how can people know whether Saint-Domingue principle has any oil? Since starting my research in Saint-Domingue principle in 2007, I've written a lot about the first question, the question about how people can benefit from, from oil in, in the widest sense. I've asked about the ways in which Saint-Domingue prepare for oil in order to prevent what economists and political scientists have come to call a resource curse, where, for example, due to high levels of corruption, it's mostly the political leaders and the, the elites that benefit from resource extraction while the poor lose out. But I've come to realize that over the years, um, the second question, so the question about whether Saint-Tomé has any oil, has actually become far more important. The first expert to reply to the question um, was Oswaldo Breu, who, who I had got to know very well during my research in Saint-Tomé. He's sitting here on the right. Oswaldo had previously been a technical director in Saint-Tomé's National Oil Agency, but he's since moved to work for an international company offering scientific data services for the oil industry. And he's actually, incidentally, since last December, become Santomé's Minister for Natural Resources. Now, Schwalde summed up the riddle of 15 years or more of inconclusive oil exploration in Santomé. So he said, we are dealing with a scientific matter that is complicated because it happens out of our sight. We are dealing with a geological matter that is found in the subsoil while we are here above ground. We are dealing with petroleum in an imagined form, and people keep imagining, predicting, and hoping that what we hold in our minds, in our imagination, or in the results of the studies we have done is true. Oswaldo's words were wrapped in hope and doubt that was familiar to me from many conversations I have had with people since starting my fieldwork um, in 2007. They hinted at the overwhelming sense of indeterminacy that petroleum an ostensibly concrete geological phenomenon had for many of them. In this paper, I want to explore the indeterminacy of oil in Saint-Tomé. Indeterminacy seems to me an, a characteristic aspect of natural resource making generally, but has rarely been an explicit focus of anthropological analysis. Anna Singh's work is, is a notable exception here. I'm, of course, not alone in, in thinking about um, indeterminacy, um, anthropologists are now trying to move on beyond the certainties that we've come to expect from and, and criticize in, in our analysis. Anthropologists are, are probing questions of hope, of uncertainty, of, of possibility and impossibility, and they're reorienting the anthropological gaze towards um, the future and into the not yet, if you like. And they are joined and, and partly follow a consolidating philosophical school that seeks to establish openness, inventiveness, and potentiality as fundamental properties of the world. I think these are very exciting developments. What I want to do here um, today is to, is to also move on from accounts of uncertainty and risk as cognitive phenomena and as inherently calculable and governable epistemological problems, and I want to try and get at indeterminacy as a problem of methodology and ontology. Um, that is, although there's a lot of not knowing involved in, in what I'm going to talk about, these practices of, not, of knowing or not knowing oil in Saint-Tomé are not the primary focus of my analysis. What I'm trying to capture is how oil comes to be in the peculiar state that it's in in Saint-Tomé. My aim is ethnographic. It's to ask where indeterminacy comes from or, and what sustains it. Oil is in, in many ways a paradigmatic um, anchor for this kind of analysis of, of indeterminacy. The anticipated lack of hydrocarbons, or indeed their abundance, have given rise to anxious projections and scenarios and, and, um, and has structured speculations in the industry. 
In addition, scholars have highlighted all its illusory effects, particularly in anthropology, they've done that. That is, the merge of prosperity that oil can generate in the national economies of producer states. Oil rents alongside oil extraction's relatively low requirement for labor and its marked separation from other domestic economic activity may create the impression that, as Fernando Coronel has written, riches reside directly in nature. This ready transubstantiation into monetary, monetary wealth appears to have intensified as oil markets and global financial markets become fused ever more tightly. And as a result, again, this is Coronel, oil ceases to be identified as material substance. I want to latch on to this observation but revert the attention to the substance of oil. Like Oswaldo in his television statement, I argue that anthropological analysis needs to go beyond treating resources as purely social or economic animations and unite what is conjured in the imagination with, um, and what is conjured by rocks. This paper tries to register the multiple forces, affects and modes of speculation that are mobilized in realizing and indeed obstructing or maintaining resource potentiality. This involves a range of encounters between state and politicians, multinational oil companies such as Chevron and ExxonMobil, American and Nigerian businessmen, geologists from London and Oslo, chemical engineers like Oswaldo, and a resource to be. The indeterminacy of Santomé's oil, as Oswaldo indicated in his TV statement, has stemmed largely from an incapacity to realize its potential. I therefore want to begin with some thoughts about potentiality, which I then work through in, in, my, in my analysis. A concept of potentiality has been defining of resources. First, potentiality speaks of potency and valuation, and as such has been essential to conceptions of natural resources. A resource is something that is generative of other things, suggests Elizabeth Ferry and Mandana Limbert. Over the course of the last century, oil has become an archetypal resource substance in this sense, part of energetic circulation spanning the world. It embodies much of what is ingenious and what is deeply repugnant about the human condition. Oil oils the global economy, it fuels transportation and makes those who control it unbelievably rich and occasionally unbelievably corrupt. It is indispensable to most other types of resource extraction, even its own. Second, potentiality, capaciousness and transformability distinguish resources from material things, but this has been largely <coughs> under-theorized in the literature after the so-called material turn. Ault's material specificity leads to its particular insertion into what Ingold has called matter flows, but just how this happens is always shaped by complex and shifting sets of differences, political, economic and, and scientific differences, that are constitutive of resource processes. Third, um, potentiality is humanly created as much as it is derived from nature. This insight is, is not new. Um, in the 1930s, resource economist Eric Zimmerman summed it up cogently when he said, resources are not, they become. For Zimmerman, resources were the outcome of historically contingent processes of valuation and appropriation and of a self-renewing spirit of human creativity and innovation. The large-scale exploration of petroleum in, in the U.S. at the start of the 20th century was one of his key examples. I can't give you the details here of, of Zimmerman's analysis, analysis, but I think it's quite a systematic description of what geographers and anthropologists today might call the production of socio-natures. That is to say, his account depicts petroleum's potentiality as generated within sets of relations between human and non-human, social and natural things that are themselves formed and transformed in the process. I'm also mindful that um, the moment that I want to describe regarding Saint-Tomé's oil is only the briefest moment or the briefest episode in its long existence. It's the moment when, when stuff that is largely cut off from human interference is already in practice in ways that reveal many of its possible modes of being, from flammable, viscous, and capable of multiple forms to being energy-dense, easy to transport and convertible into huge sums of money, to therefore being occasionally fought over and having highly monopolizing effects on national economies. However, the kind of properties that have made oil a ubiquitous substance over the last century or so are only a small part of what oil is and does. The vast majority of the actions and interactions of what chemists describe as hydrocarbon molecules, including their continually threatening capacity to take on gaseous form and, and virtually disappear, 
are independent of human actions and occur on vastly different timescales. I'm, I'm saying this not to essentialize the material substance. I'm, I'm saying it to distinguish the moment of resource making from discovery or invention, as to paraphrase the philosopher Graham Harmon, a moment of transformation. It is in this sense that potenti- the potentiality of petroleum is both, as, as Harmon puts it, not talking about petroleum though, immaterial and substantial. That is, not all of its possible qualities have to be realized, and not all of them are the, the result of the substance's relation with other things. The question of oil's immateriality or materiality has kept baffling me, at the same time as the disappointing results of test drills were being reported in Saint Tome in the news and commercial oil production was further postponed, people around me identified the tangible effects of its existence, including, for example, a large World Bank technical capacity building program um, or NGOs mobilizing civil society around oil. Nigerian, Cameroonian and um, Angolan banks have rushed to Saint Tomé in, in anticipation of oil-related investments and Portuguese developers um, have constructed villas to house the Saint Tomé in Nouveau Riche. Fifteen or twenty years ago, people told me few foreigners visited the islands aside from IMF or UNDP delegations, but now friends commented on the new immigrants from the region and beyond attracted by the prospect of oil money. And some people opined that politics seemed to have become more aggressive, fueled by people's vying for access to resource spoils. From this perspective, the speculative oil discussed in in the TV show I mentioned at the start of of this paper was not just a figment of the imagination, as Oswaldo, the chemical engineer, knows full well. As a potential resource, Santomé's oil has generated and is generated by an intricate arrangement of porous rocks, stock market fluctuations, drilling barges, core samples, profit-seeking interests, socioeconomic inequities, temperature measurements, sulfur levels, international conventions, and much more. For the philosopher Harmon, potentiality is a somewhat lazy objectification of a propensity, a faint possibility, and the not yet actualized capacities of, of things. He challenges us to pinpoint much more precisely the specific ontological status of, say, and this is his example, the lethalness of a piece of uranium lying in the desert, or indeed the capacity of saint speculative oil to make people sign contracts, hire expensive drilling ships, and accuse one's uncle of corruption. I cannot solve Harman's conundrum, but I want to take up his challenge ethnographically, and I will stick with potentiality for two reasons. First, the term carried many ethnographic resonances in saint Potentiality was something that people discussed, fretted over, and sought to establish with the help of a number of scientific, commercial, and, and legal tools. And second, I want to expand the concept by probing more deeply the question of potentiality's non-actualization. For despite all its tangible effects, saint oil has also threatened not to become at all. For example, the existing reserves might be insufficient to warrant exploitation, and saint petroleum era could falter before it began. Agamben, Giorgio Agamben, um, captures the seemingly inconsequential aspect of potentiality when he calls potentiality the presence of an absence. While potentiality has been conventionally understood as the opposite of actuality, as that which is not yet, Agamben is particularly concerned with um, potentiality's capacity to remain unactualized. He asks whether potentiality does not also contain the possibility to not be or to not do, a possibility which for him at least encapsulates potentiality's core character. So I want to use these philosophical ideas, Agamben's and Harman's, in trying to comprehend Santomé's oil between this generative potential of the resource and its potential not to become. So <clears throat> this is uh, Luis Brazierich, or Kapala, as he's widely known as, and as I will call him throughout his paper. He's the director of Santo Tomé's National Oil Agency. In, in one of our first interviews, I asked Kapala to run me through the beginnings of oil in Santo Tomé. Kapala had been the agency's director since its founding in 2004. He was originally trained as a pilot, but became Santo Tomé's uh, first Minister of Natural Resources in 1999 and had worked in the oil administration ever since. 
His response to my question about um, the beginnings of oil in Santomé surprised me. Instead of pointing to the year 1997, which is often taken to be the birth date of Santomé's petroleum era, when the Santomé state, or the government rather, signed a fateful contract with a U.S. oil exploration company, Kapala claimed that oil had first been identified as one of the island's hidden treasures in the late 19th century. I'm writing a history of these developments, he told me. He pulled a pen drive from his pocket, pocket, stuck it into his computer and clicked open a document that turned out to be the manuscript of a chronicle of Santomé's petroleum dossier. Writing this history was not part of his remit as the agency's director, but it needed to be told, he said. In a sense, Kapala's um, chronicle, or rather the stating of, of the origins of oil to, to the 19th century, um, in doing so he offered nothing less than the rewrite of, of an origin myth of oil. It's an attempt to anchor oil in a local history of things. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The conjuring of resources out of wild nature, so deftly analysed by Anat Singh, has been a condition of being in the archipelago in Santomé and Principe. Colonised by the Portuguese from the late 15th century onwards, Santomé and Principe um, played a dual role in Portugal's colonial project, first as entrepôts for navigation ambitions and the flourishing slave trade across the Atlantic, and second as points of extraction. Over the course of the centuries, the islands have been done and undone as resource frontiers. They were a place where resource potentialities were envisioned and just as quickly dissolved or moved elsewhere. The islands which soils, climate and ready access to the slave labour markets on the African continent made them ideal prototypes for the first successful plantation economies, producing sugar and later coffee and cocoa. Reaching upwards from sea level to about 2,000 metres, the diverse terrain with its rainy and dry seasons prescribed an ecological order of things which colonisers found irresistible and with which they struggled. Sets of flies, rats, mildew and uncountable deaths of humans, animals and plants, alongside invasions by the French and the Dutch as well as fugitive slaves, repeatedly challenged this protracted effort at frontier making and ecological remodelling. As agroeconomic prototypes, and this is just a leftover one of the planta- or buildings from one of the plantations that were built in Santomé. So as agroeconomic prototypes, Santomé and Principe were the stepping stones for the more successful sugarcane production in South America and the Caribbean. A first sugarcane sapling planted sometime after 1481 transformed the islands into productive land, a transferable and contested resource commodity. However, by the mid-17th century, sugarcane production had been abandoned for many reasons that I cannot go into now. And the lush rainforest at Saint-Domingue's school Obo, with trees that, according to a colonial admirer, were so tall they appeared to touch the heavens, quickly overgrew the mills and wooden houses of the early fazenders, whose owners had left to seek their luck in Brazil. In the interstices of abandonment emerged a Creole population that in its relation to land and sea, its genetic makeup and sociality, embodied all the contradictions of enforced mixed-race relations and manumission in the Portuguese empire. Some people got rich by trading and keeping slaves. Others pursued subsistence agriculture on available land, selling surplus to passing ships. Introduced species grew alongside indigenous roots and plants. And today, a dark green stew of chicken, pork or fish, breadfruit, eggplant, tomatoes, palm oil, mixed with an assortment of aromatic leaves, ponto, manqueque, galo, kimi, mesquito, musua, and topped by a generous sprinkle of manioc flowers cherished as the national dish. By the start of the 19th century, Portugal sought to revive its island territories with massive capital injection. State-owned land leased to native families often without title or simply occupied were sold to Portuguese colonists for export crop production, mainly cocoa and coffee. Vast stretches of the island's coastal forest disappeared and together with an increased use of wood fuel um, trying techniques of, of cocoa and coffee and steam engines for, to, to, steam, to, to use these trains for example that were transporting cocoa from the plantations to the coast but also people as you can see um, this pushed the resource frontier ever deeper into the forest, um, leading to the disappearance of, of uh, trees or species of trees like this one, which is now um, marked in, in, in Santomé's national um, 
uh, nature reserve in, in the centre of the <laughs> island as, as um, one of the it's one of the disappearing red listed um, uh, threatened species which was previously endemic to, or which is endemic to the island and which was used primarily for the building of, um, of um, uh, train tracks. Um, Proper shade management became an item of intense dispute as well. When an increasing number of trees were knocked down with the greedy aim of intensifying coca yield in the short term, photosynthesis stepped up pace, water and minerals no longer replenished the land, mysterious ruby-belted insects such as bees um, attacked the tired-out coca trees, fungal diseases caused their roots to rot, and far-reaching climatic changes nearly threatened the end of coca production. The plantations or rosses that were from the late 19th century, the motor um, of, of the cash crop, uh, were from, from the late 19th century, the motor of the cash crop economy, and this is just one of them, and you just see it to give you a sense of the size of them and kind of sort of in, in the forest in, in, the, in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. They're the in-your-face reminders of futures built um, on human and non-human resource potential, partially realized and eventually abandoned. Laborers were largely prohibited from pursuing subsistent agriculture on plantation land. Digging, picking, pruning, watering, weeding, human encounters with flora and soil were, at least in principle, to be motivated by profits, not sustenance. The islands were assemblages of a desire for economic power, abusive systems of labor, market booms and busts, and of agricultural techniques machinery, plant specimen and their companion species parasites that circulated across the globe and adapted with varying success to land rendered fertile. Towards its peak, the horrifically impressive index of Saint-Thomé's productivity enlists around 200 rosses owned largely by Lisbon-based agricultural companies where 40,000 indentured laborers and their offspring, pl offspring plus tens of thousands of temporary contract workers reaped around 35,000 tons of cocoa per annum uh, from countless millions of trees. Yet expectations of enduring economic success remained unfulfilled. It was foiled by the developments in the, in the territories of other empires, the painful inefficiency of the continued use of slave and contract labor, the irrational and costly organization of the plantation and agricultural techniques unsuited to species and climate. Planters regularly, inf regularly inflated the numbers when reporting to their metropolitan investors. With cocoa prices falling from the 1920s onwards, an increasingly untenable labor system and limits to competitiveness, cocoa production in Saint-Tomé deteriorated rapidly. Even so, the islands maintained a per-head outcome output of more kilos of cocoa than any other country in the world well into the 1990s. So what about oil? You may ask. <laughs> um, this man, this is uh, Francisco de Oliveira Chamiso, um, the founder and governor of the Banco Nacional Ultramarino, the BNU as I call it here, a private bank aiming to foster economic activity in the overseas territories. He made a request in 1876 directed at the Portuguese Ministry for Maritime and Overseas Trade. In sprawling handwriting, blue ink on, on thin paper, Chamiso asserted that analysis of water samples taken from a brook in one of the Saint-Domingue agricultural properties contained 70% oleo, as he called it. And this is the brook, at least this is where I was led to. Um, you can see there's some water here, which is slightly discolored. And, um, it's called now agropetolio. The governor sought the ministry's urgent support in investigating this petroleum mine, as he called it, for opening a new source of wealth of this order, he said, could be crucial for man maintaining the prosperity of the colonial state. The BNU would be covering the costs of such an investigation. Speculation by um, enabled by resource potential it might be is not unsubstantiated. It is based on what people know and on what they know they don't know. The governor's request may have been motivated by exciting reports about this powerful new resource that was starting to be exploited at the time from Galicia and Baku to Pennsylvania, and by slave revolts in the previous year that led to a hasty, if, if long promised, abolition of slave labor in Saint Tome. However, nothing came of it at the time. The governor's newfangled proposition may have see, it quickly seemed 
irrelevant as contract labour allowed, or so-called contract labour allowed a way around abolition, and a cocoa boom catapulted Santomé principle in spite of itself into the 20th century. The project of petroleum exploration continued to be pursued during the colonial era, especially in the late 1960s and early 70s. The colonial government investigated possibilities for its exploration. On long, warm evenings in one of Saint-Thomé's popular bars, Aito Bonfin, a respected lawyer, would relate to me fragmented memories about his teenage self, offering his services and his budding English skills to the British company hired to do the exploration. Barely a decade later, now freshly returned from Portugal with a law degree in hand, Aito was landed with the job of revising existing exploration contracts by Santomé's independent socialist government. But without seismic data, and because of the depth of Santomé's waters, prospecting proposals were soon jettisoned. Along came this man. From the late 1980s, Christian Hellinger, a South African entrepreneur born in India to German missionaries who had existing business interests in the islands, was granted concessions by the now independent government to drill at various locations across Santomé Island. Hellinger owned diamond mines in Angola and during the Civil War used Santomé as an evacuation platform for his staff. How did he get into oil, I inquired when I interviewed him in 2007. Hellinger explained that ge- the geologists from his mines had nothing to do while on evacuation, so he kept them busy with investigations of the petroleum hidden in Santomé's rainforest. Flicking through Hellinger's archives, I picture him chatting over a glass of whiskey with the men that claimed to govern Saint-Tomé, beckoning oil riches buried deep under layers of volcanic rock and promising perhaps a hotel or two for foreign tourists or an improvement of the president's villa. I find among, among telefaxes, contracts and maps a clipping from an industry magazine dated April 1990 and reporting on an upcoming sale of offshore oil licenses in nearby Equatorial Guinea. A scribble in the margin that says, getting warm, question mark, indicated that the quest for Santomain oil may have been more than a pastime for underworld staff. Enabled by rapidly adapting technologies, the Equatorial findings confirmed the region's reputation as one of Africa's hottest petroleum frontiers. Hellinger commissioned various surveys and with technology shipped in from South Africa, drilled to wildcat wells. This is the remains of, of one of them. Or, yeah. um, <clears throat> when the drilling shafts collapsed, Hellinger had run out of money. However, the core samples from his wells would become critical in attracting the company that then kicked off Santomé's petroleum era. Oil reappeared when other attempts to revive Santomé's existing extractive regime through structural adjustment had failed to bring the expected results. By the mid-1990s, the Santomé state was entering into a financial crisis and increasingly engaging in types of of what Laura Baer has called speculative planning, embracing the risky proposals of international partners. In this context, Santomé's governors and leaders were envisioning new resources to exploit, from commemorative stamps to a free trade zone. The surrounding Atlantic Sea, too, could be remade as an extractive space beyond the island's narrow littoral fringe, beyond the habitat of scalloped hammerheads and snappers, and beyond where fishermen from Santomé and Principe had ever ventured. In short, the abolition of slavery and uneconomical technologies, the oil crisis and the decline of oil fields, or semi-submersibles and mobile offshore drilling units, or or cash-trapped officials unversed in either petroleum geology or global markets and receptive to promises of easy wealth, I think none of these, or each of these, tells only part of the story of Santomé's waxing and and waning um, petroleum frontier. Resource potentiality is forged forged from from complex conditions in which speculation thrives in a variety of ways, which are nonetheless constrained by history and by the specific capaciousness of its objects. Speculation about resources and perhaps all speculation cannot be reduced to either epistemology or to a type of economic behavior based on uncertain knowledge, but it is also a specific mode of material engagement. And as we'll see... As I'll elaborate, speculation about Santomé's oil, for example, has exploited the substance's obscurity and geological concentration in particular places 
its relative, relative abundance as well as manufactured scarcity, and as a result, all is dispersed along lines of relations between states and companies, between service providers and international institutions that provide models for governance and economic propriety. Significantly, potentiality allows such relations to perpetuate and multiply. And I now want to suggest more specifically what um, contributes and sustains the indeterminacy of, of oil in, in Santa Tomé in this way. In, in closing, the introduction to his chronicle about Santa Tomé's petroleum dossier, Capala lists some of the bureaucratic and legal infrastructures that had been critical to Santa Tomé's petroleum dossier. Maritime boundaries circumscribed the precise location of the new national asset. Two licensing rounds allocated access to the resource. Mechanisms for good governance and transparency were implemented and a series of agreements set out the obligations of the country's various industry partners. The National Oil Agency, which Kapala directed, was part of this effort. Much less spectacular than the industry's iconic infrastructure, such as pumps, and pump jacks and, and platforms, the infrastructures listed by Kapala, such as contracts and wells or maritime boundaries, are, are nonetheless vital to resource extraction. The literature on oil in the social sciences has, has identified an ambiguity of infrastructures as both conducive to and jeopardizing resource potential. While economists have emphasized the need to build appropriate in, institutions to refine contractual parameters and stabilize economies with legislation, Anthropologists and geographers have highlighted how platforms, pipelines, and other extractive infrastructures foster both materially and metaphorically the nature of oil as a dangerous suspect matter. Poised between operationability and collapse, in this view, infrastructures bring either success or failure. I want to propose a slightly different tack here, whether it's a rig pulling out um, oil from deep beneath the, the earth's surface or aluminium pans separating gold from gravel or coal shovels as big as houses, extractive infrastructures and the substances whose extraction they serve always enable each other to become in certain ways. Similarly, certain infrastructural devices have modulated Santomé's oil as a present absence. While infrastructures are seen as integral to the realization of resource potential, they may also simply perpetuate it. In fact, the term infrastructure might suggest more purpose and stability than is warranted, and instead I propose to think of infrastructures here as gestures, to, to use again a, ter a term proposed by Agamben, as neither productive with definitive ends nor pure action, an end in itself. The gesture exhibits mediality, and there has been much gesturing, I think, towards oil, saint main oil in, in this sense. So very briefly... Um, I want to talk about three infrastructures here, which are the, the contract, the zone, and the, the well. This is an image of the signing of a contract, not the contract actually that I'm going to talk about, but another contract um, signed in 2011 uh, by Capales, director of the National Oil Agency and um, an oil company called Oranto, a production sharing contract. I just use it as one of these images um, of people signing contracts to give you something to look at. Volcaniclastic rocks, igneous rocks, supermature rocks, rocks uplifted and intruded in, in the neogene by the growth of those volcanic islands, but also sandstones, shales, deep marine sediments deposited from the late Cretaceous to the Oligocene, oil-prone source beds lying deeper away from the islands with their modest porosity and poor permeability, Traps found in tilted fault blocks surrounding the islands requiring further seismic survey. And finally, conditions that are likely to result in the presence of oil accumulations in the lower tertiary in the offshore areas of both islands, although their possible size and to some extent reservoir quality are at present speculative. These are renderings of the Earth's surface um, gleaned from the report of the British expert hired by Helena. To geologists, they speak of petroleum potential, maybe not on the island itself, but certainly offshore. And to risk-taking entrepreneurs, such as Hellinger, they translate into encouragement, providing sufficient base for their calculations of likely gain. The double obscurity of Santa Maisol, um, expressed also in, in this abstract, um, both its geolog as geologically obscured and its worth not yet revealed by the market, allowed a range of speculative attach attachments. 
On May 27, 1997, the Santomain government signed a memorandum of agreement with a little-known U.S. oil company called ERHC. It accompanied a contract between the two parties with a validity of 25 years and renewable thereafter, which granted EIHC the right to exploit Santomé's hydrocarbon resources in return for a fee of $5 million. It also assigned the company 40% of the revenues from future oil produced from Santomé's waters. In addition, EIHC would act as negotiator with any other companies that wish to explore Santomain oil, earning a 5% fee from any payable concession bonuses. In return for this sweeping command over the country's hydrocarbons, the company promised to raise the funds necessary to kickstart exploration activities. Rather than providing a course for action, the contract underscored oil's divisibility and established a common promissory value shaped by assumptions of finitude and, and competition over access. Despite EIHC's limited experience and financial resources, staff convinced the Santomain officials of their ability to carry the project through. The company's chief operating officer sported Stetson and cowboy boots on his visit to, uh, to the islands when promising the Santomain government to raise $100 million in seven months. A maritime boundary claim was filed, diplomatic passports were issued to the supposed owners of a Montenegro bank, and an arrangement was made with Mobile, later ExxonMobil, granting the, the multinational concessions in return for seismic research offshore, where the key prospects were now expected to be located. In addition, EHC and the Santomain government established a joint venture oil company to manage any oil-related activities. Over the next few years, then, EHC and, and various representatives of the Santomain government broke off, revised, and entered into new agreements. Accusations of bribery and corruption flew through the air. Meanwhile, EIHC was battling bankruptcy as well as an investigation by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. In 2001, the company acquired, was acquired by the Nigerian businessman Emika Offer, a close ally of President Obasanjo. So once heralding the arrival of Santomain Oil, the company's involvement is now criticized as a liability. EIHC acted as both business partner and consultant and has directly generated 2,723 kilometers of 2D seismic data used to attract additional investors. In the eyes of many observers, however, EIHC has been responsible for the country losing substantial possible earnings. So in short, instead of revealing an only perpetually known oil prospect in Santomé's waters, the contract with EIHC seems to have plucked it ever more tightly. And now we'll talk about the second infrastructure, the zone. And petroleum geologists have a special way of inferring oil. They call it a seismic survey. Such surveys involve a large boat, such as this one, um, towing air guns and a set of microphones across the seabed. As they explosively void their air chambers, bubbles of energy are sent out, expanding, propagating outwards, hitting the seabed and bouncing back up, producing noisy traces. Boom! Oswaldo aped the sound for me um, in the sound of this air gun when recounting his experience of interning on, on such a mission. Boom! Boom! The echoes force vibrating through the vessel's body 24 hours a day, he said, registering on, on Oswaldo's own senses, his skin, his ears, his organs, making it difficult to find sleep. Some energy penetrates the seabed, enters into the rock layer, some bounces back up and some goes down and is never heard of again. How long does it take for the energy's echo to return to the equipment? Physical encounters and measurements of time lapsed become images at the geologist's hand, like cut scans of a human body, slices to the Earth's, Earth's crust. The images are not snapshots of, of reservoirs filled with dark fluids or even types of rocks. They are images of temporality, of density, porosity, latency, and odds that may reveal themselves to the discerning eye. They are most like photographs of the moon, a Scottish geologist told me. No perceptible features, only dark, light and dark. Until you take a sample, you cannot know what you have. When in 1998, EHC took Santomé's Prime Minister, Raoul Braganza, to the United Nations Law of the, sea, Law of the Sea Commission in New York City to file a request for the establishment of maritime boundaries, this was not a non-trivial piece of technical assistance. The seismic surveys of Santomé's offshore hydrocarbon potential conducted by a subsidiary of 
um, the global petroleum services provider Schlumberger, um, Schlumberger, or Schlumberger, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, which was paid for by ExxonMobil, had located the most valuable prospects in areas bordering Nigerian waters. Finding, I think I have a map of something like that here, yeah. Um, this just indicates, this is a more recent map, and actually just indicating for San Tomé's exclusive economic zone rather than the joint development zone, which I'm talking about in a moment, um, the lines of, of these seismic surveys that have been done. So, filing boundary claims, including the delineation of exclusive economic zones, as they're called, has become an urgent undertaking to control what Gisley Parson has called national aquariums of exploitable <coughs> nature. Law number 1-98, the outcome of the New York trip, recasts fish, metals, diamonds, and other substances found in and on the seabed as national assets to be mined and, and cared for. However, these biological and non-biological entities and substances are now of, a dual, of dual nationality. Economic categories, not sovereign substances, were the result of Santomé's boundary claims, threatening Santomé's dreams of petrostyle national self-sufficiency. While Equatorial Guinea and Gabon readily accepted the Santomé um, exclusive economic zone based on a principle of equidistance, as you can see, this is the line in equidistance from Equatorial Guinea and Gabon and, and um, Santomé in principle, um, Nigeria questioned the appropriateness of this claim on the basis of its much larger coastline. Three years of protracted negotiations ensued. A first, second, and third meeting between the parties was scheduled to put the technical arguments on the table. By May 2000, the negotiations reached deadlock, as Capala told me. Illustrious U.S. lawyers specialized in boundary disputes were called upon to help Santomé prepare a proposal that was hoped to bring a truce. More legal research, more discussions, more cups of coffee, and a final long meeting lasting from morning till midnight led to a critical item of bilateral jurisdiction, a zone managed jointly by the two states, but with Nigeria claiming 60% and Santomé 40%, which is the, the joint development zone up there. The delineation of this joint development zone, covering an area of 34,450 square kilometers, constituted a further step towards the commodification of Santomé's oil. As the assessor to the Minister of Natural Resources explains to me, explained to me, only now could concessionary blocks, these divisions, uh, these licensing blocks, be identified and allocated in so-called licensing rounds. The proximity of Nigeria's rich oil fields to Santomé's hypothetical econ exclusive economic zone and, and then, of course, the, the joint development zone seemed to reflect well on its prospects. In addition, Nigerian desire for the Santomé hydrocarbons may have strengthened the impression that they really were there. Some people I talked to approved Nigeria's involvement by pointing out how the country's vast experience with the oil industry benefited the island state, but others saw the partnership as lopsided and deceitful, an impression that fed into a broader cultural perception of Nigerians as worldly but cunning business operators. The authority managing the joint development zone, which has its headquarters in Abuja, is a fitting enactment of Santomé's absent oil, an inflated bureaucratic apparatus with a budget of several million dollars per year eating into Santomé's limited income from oil. I should rem remind you there's no commercial oil extraction yet, really. This is just managing the oil that is there. The, the joint development zone has not rendered the Santomé state completely inoperative. Rather, it plots out fresh networks of transboundary relations. The auctions for exploration rights in the, in the JDZ provided empirical fodder to this truth. It's, um, especially the second, second licensing round in, in 2004 turned the economic wisdom that auctions are a foolproof instrument for establishing a fair and real price into a farce. Instead, it resulted in, in, in a report by Santomé's attorney general, a document that is probably Santomé's most public embodiment of transparency to date. The report alleged, amongst other things, that a series of Nigerian-owned companies without credentials had been awarded concessionary rights following a near-total disregard for any international standards and rules of conduct. Clandestine decision-making processes involving the Abuja-based authority managing the JDZ Nigerian and Santomean government figures and their advisors have caused considerable disquiet. The question of the real culprits remains unresolved, but the annulment of the auction temporarily deferred 
oil exploration in Santa Maria once again. And now come to the last infrastructure, which is the well. If you find oil, you have to drill, runs the slogan of, on the website of, of Schlumberger, the recognized oil exploration technology <coughs> pioneer. Tearing away at the rock, the reserve is spudded, it's, as it's called, pressure released, and if one is lucky, crude emerges in a great big surge. Schlumberger perfected this prospecting technique in the first few decades of the 20th century, thus giving scientific backing to what has previously been a fairly intuitive endeavor. Wells can turn possible and probable reserves into proven ones. However, they can also show that the geology does not meet expectations. At the start of 2006, encouraging early science from the Obo 1 well in Block 1 of the JDZ, drilled by this ship here, the Deepwater Discovery, um, paid for by Chevron Texaco, made EIHC share prices shoot up. Thousands of feet of a steel drill have been lowered to penetrate the icy cold sea floor. A drilling riser bringing up mud, people busy operating the equipment, observing, measuring, analyzing, and making sure that the technology remains stably connected in this floating environment. A press release finally broke the news. At 1,720 meters, Oberon logged a cumulative total of at least 100 feet or 45 meters of hydrocarbon pay in multiple reservoirs and provided important and provided important reservoir rock and liquid samples. But Chevron's expat representative recommended caution before commercial viability was proven. It is too soon to speculate about a date for the first barrels, he said. For the moment, the reservoirs were deemed to were deemed not to justify economic development on their own. Geological facts are easily drowned out by the cacophony, cacophony of voices that say otherwise. Tim Chevron's representative was notably exasperated when we talked in 2007, just after the publication of yet another article in a local paper, quoting a Santomian official at the JDZ Authority in Nigeria, disputing Chevron's assessment of its discouraging um, drill results. However, for Tim, the people to blame were not just irresponsible officials trying to, or politicians trying to capture votes and stave off IMF technocrats with myth of impending wealth, but IMF economists themselves, who in his view published equally as irresponsible studies predicting millions of barrels, barrels of oil in Santa Maria's water, and, and there was one report in particular that he was citing there. They forgot about the geology, he said. Any announcement of no oil can swiftly be rephrased as there is no, no oil yet. It was not uncommon for people to shift within the same conversation from a declaration of disbelief that their country would ever see a drop of the substance to a conviction that once it comes, oil will hopefully make a difference. Chevron's announcement fell largely on deaf ears in Saint-Domingue bars, streets, markets, where hearsay and rumors circulate. This was not a problem of data interpretation, of economic calculation or unequal information, but of having or not having oil. The common sense was that the international corporations drilling in Santa Mes water, including Chevron, already had oil, but clearly concealed their possessions from the country's rulers and citizens. Persistent rumors that Chevron was pulling out of Santa Mes were countered with widespread expectations that the company would simply postpone production as specified in its production-sharing contract. But alas, Chevron left in 2010. So to, to, just to sum up, I've been talking about these three infrastructures, contracts that create unsubstantiated value in, in lieu of liquidity, if you like, maritime zones that rather than inscribing oil as an object of sovereignty become a coercive space, and wells that reveal not prospectivity but rather lack of viability. Santa Mains may never know how much oil they have. This, yeah, that's right, actually. Um, the big news that Oswaldo Capala and others shared with me on my last visit to Santa Mé in, in, in November, December last year was the acquisition of Chevron's interest by Total, the French oil company, which already has an existing presence in the region. Total has proposed to tie exploration in the JDZ to its Nigerian operations. So you can see the joint development zone and then you can see some of these oil fields on the Nigerian side, basically Total, amongst others, is also operating. Um, a technical advisor from the Norwegian Develop Development Organization, NORAD, 
asserted in a conversation we had in December 2012 that um, with a subsea transfer into the main production ship, this makes good business sense. So that is, oil will literally be sucked out of the JDZ to Nigerian territory. The lack of potential at Chevron's well log had indicated can thus inflate as, as circumstances change, but exploiting Santomian oil in this way will bring its own challenges. Who will be measuring and account for the specific quantities of Santomian oil? Santomian authorities, Nigerian ones, the, the JDA, which is the authority managing this JDZ. While Kapala and Oswaldo were optimistic about the possibility other people I spoke to were more sceptical, noting that given the history of distrust, Santomé was likely to end, end up cheated. So, to conclude, um, in this paper I've, I've examined um, a dispersed substance oil whose material existence has been in doubt. In this presence of an absence, potentiality is the stuff that matters, and any concern with the substance of oil as such is indistinguishable from what from what it can do or might become. Resource potentiality, as I've demonstrated, is thus not just the fabrication of conmen and crony capitalists, it is revealed by a variety of speculative practices, including those of European geologists, IMF economists, industry specialists, state officials, and ordinary Saint-Germains. My paper's drawn attention to how the process of doing and undoing resource potentiality works, not just in relation to Saint-Germain speculative oil, but also in relation to the, the, the countries or the islands, more long-standing history as a, as a resource frontier. I've talked quite a bit about cocoa plantations, not only because they're important elements of the historical fabric of the country, but also because I wanted to trace how the undoing of one resource potential led, perhaps, to the emergence of another. I've been fascinated by Saint-Domain's oil's apparent refusal to be fully commodified, but I don't mean that in any romanticized way. There's nothing romantic about it. During the time that foreign oil investors and local governors argue about speculative oil, a large number of people do continue living in extreme poverty, but of course we don't know whether they'd be better off if there was oil. In short, I've offered my thoughts on Saint-Germain oil as a productive merger between different kinds of approaches, each of which I felt, I feel is, is, is missing out on some crucial things. So full-blown... Um, Full-blown oil nations like Nigeria or Venezuela, each with their own historical idiosyncrasies, would make a very poor analytical lens, I think, um, to understand for understanding what's going on in Santomé now. Um, <clears throat> oil, Santomé's oil is also not easily pressed into the kind of commodity-based paradigm that has informed the political ecology approaches. On the other hand, um, as Eliad has observed in his study of alchemy a very long time ago, the desire to supersede time, that is to tinker with time, speed it up and take it in new directions by engaging with and transmuting nature, has long been a part of a condition that we would call now um, the Anthropocene. Prospecting, um, boundary drawing, drilling and extracting, these are all activities, I'd suggest, or interventions in what Ingold refers to a little uncritically, I think, as, as matter flow. I want to know how this supposed flow, or indeed, in Iliad's words, words, time itself, gets interrupted, gets diverted or accelerated. And I think as anthropologists we are in a good position to understand not just how this happens, but also how it feels for the people who live that or who are in the middle of it. Thank you.